NASA's Amiga Collection. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. A mysterious new Zelda game appears. A never-before-seen Mario game is unearthed. Amigas at NASA. And The Simpsons get unreal. All this and our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, what's the first thing that you do when you get to a hotel room? Well, it's been a while, given the circumstances of the world, since I've been to a hotel. But uh, the first thing I probably do is test the bed is comfortable. Um, my favorite technique for that is probably the full body flop. You know, face oh, yes. first, arms mm -hmm. out, straight onto the uh, onto the bed. By the way, anyone watching who's who's disgusted by the fact that I'm wearing a hoodie today, it's DIY day, so do excuse the lack of a shirt today i'm looking a bit <laughs> casual um so yeah probably the bed and then probably the bathroom you've got to set you've got to check that the bathroom's fit for human use uh, i think mm, those are the yes. two most important things for me yeah how about you john what are your bedroom or hotel room checks i i head straight to the bathroom and i check out the bathrobe situation um if you're staying at a hotel with a bathrobe that's how you know you've made it neil um Unfortunately, I still haven't made it. I always look. I'm always disappointed. But uh, after I do that, I usually familiarize myself with all the little bottles of soap and shampoo. I turn that AC onto max and settle in for an evening of binge TV watching and pizza delivery. But uh, it wasn't always this way. Uh, back in the 90s and early aughts, uh, hotels experimented with entertainment options beyond cable TV. And I'm not talking about the old Magic Fingers bed massage either. Well, maybe I am a little bit, but I'm not talking about that in this story. <laughs> I'm talking about game consoles, Neil. Game consoles hooked up and ready to go from Jump Street attached to your hotel's TV. Neil, did you ever come across a Super Nintendo or an N64 hooked up in a to a TV in your local inn? No, 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 no. I can remember, um, well, I can't ever remember seeing a console in my room. And, and I mm -hmm. did do a lot of traveling for work in the noughties or the aughts, as you called them. I've not <laughs> called them called the aughts before, but uh, it's a good term. <laughs> um, I think the closest I saw was probably one of those terrible games that used to appear on our TVs. Around about the time we got Sky TV, the satellite service over here, we, we started getting set-top boxes instead of just aerials on our roofs and satellite dishes. And in those set-top boxes, we would get games. Um, a very famous one over here was called Beehive Bedlam. Mm. And um, it was basically just Puzzle Bobble or Buster Move with bees. So um, I, I would see things like that in hotel rooms sometimes. And I was acutely aware of the legends of TVs with built-in Super Nintendos and things like that. So I was always on the lookout for them, but I never actually came across one in the world myself, no. Yeah, I'm pretty sure at least once... I saw an N64 hooked up to a TV at a hotel I stayed at. Um, I, I'm almost certain that I saw one, but I don't remember messing around with it, mostly because I had a feeling it would incur some kind of charge added to my bill at the end of my stay. And uh, my assumptions were right, Neil. <laughs> Thanks to a story shared with us by This Week in Retro subreddit user Quinmang, a company called LodgeNet partnered with Nintendo to produce the Gateway series of consoles. Gateway was the, the brand name. First, the Super Nintendo, and then 
then followed by the N64. This thing was called the Gateway 64. Uh, it boasted dozens of titles that were rentable by the hour, uh, including games you'd expect like Super Mario 64 and Smash Brothers. But it also included some pretty odd choices like Paper Mario and Ocarina of Time, which is the subject of this story. So, Neil, we've talked about other Zelda games in the past. Uh, Zelda has come up before on the show, oddly enough, but I think this is the first time we've ever had a story about Link's inaugural 64-bit outing. Uh, did you play this one much back in the day? Yeah, I did play it, and I actually owned this one back in the day during my brief fling with the N64. Uh, it was sold to me on the back of the previews that I saw in Edge magazine and other gaming magazines. And the previews, they, they promised these endless rolling hills that you could roam around on horseback. There was always the famous screenshot of Link with the horse rearing up and the sunset behind mm -hmm. filtering through the horse and all silhouetted and lovely. And uh, it just blew my mind, those beautiful sunsets and those rolling hills. And I really thought I was going to be able to explore as far as the horizon went in this game. And um, I think that was the intention. A lot of these promises were lost um with the uh, with the double d um system wasn't it the disk drive system for the N64. yeah the 64 dd yeah. yeah so i think a lot of that um exploring was supposed to be tied in with the extra capacity of that but it was lost mm -hmm. when when that flopped um it was certainly never sold over here in the uk so it was stripped back for the cartridge so um either they were baseless claims and hype in the first place or that's why we lost that so initially i was a bit disappointed when i played the game it wasn't quite as free roaming as promised but it was such a charming game um you know from the music to the style to the characters that you spoke to it really did grow on me quite quickly so despite my initial disappointment about the exploration I soon did forget about that and I really got into the game. And um, also, I remember from that moment forward, every school kid in the country knew what an ocarina is. Having, <laughs> having never heard of one before, suddenly everyone right. knew what it was. There was this surge of interest in schools and they were even having lessons in them instead of the more traditional recorder that we had in schools. Mm -hmm. Kids were having ocarina lessons and they were appearing in the in the school choir and things like that. So that, I think, is a really nice cultural impact as well. An example of that on society um, of a video game. Yeah, as a as a present day uh, teacher of music myself, I can tell you that kids still play all of the songs from this game. They really? play the, the forest theme. They play a bonus theme. All of the songs from this game. I don't know what it is that has made this game have the musical lasting impact other than the fact that it's a it's a brilliant soundtrack. Um, kids today still play this music all the time on their band instruments. So I think I think that's pretty cool. Um, but in terms of the hype, I was right there with you. You know, I would over uh, previews and Nintendo Power, and I would just make these scenarios in my head where it's like, what if there was a game where you could just get on your horse and you could just go, and it would take you like an hour to get somewhere, but you'd be passing through the hills and the forest, you'd pass through villages and things, and um, of course, it would be impossible for a game of that era to really live up to the hype in my mind, uh, but... That was the that was the the ship that launched my wallet to buy a Nintendo sixty four. Uh, I I I, uh, I decided this was what I was gonna I was gonna cast my fate to. So um, 
The Gateway 64 version of Ocarina of Time has always been different than the retail release. Uh, according to the story, which is over at ZeldaUniverse.net, uh, instead of beginning the game as a child, as Baby Link or whatever, you start the game as Adult Link. And, uh, well, other than that, we really don't know what the other differences are. Uh, not much has been known about this game because the ROM has never been dumped until now. Uh, the Nintendo Preservation Group Forest of Illusion has figured out a way to dump these ROMs and have them put up on the Internet Archive for people to explore. So, you know me, Neil, uh, I don't hold any stock with software piracy. But even the most dyed-in-the-wool clean-nosed gamer probably wouldn't have a problem with this kind of preservation, as there's no other way to play this version of the game. So, Neil, do you see any kind of ethical quandary with this, this whole situation? Is there a line of distinction between piracy and preservation? Hmm. It's a it's a good question. Um, just before I come to that, we were just talking about the the promises of of this game, and I don't think thinking about it, I don't think the um, what was promised and what I really wanted was realised probably until Skyrim. I know there were games that yeah. came before it that that did it in three D, but in terms of the amount of detail that I really wanted and the size and the fantasy setting. It was probably Skyrim where I really felt, yeah, I'm riding my horse you, across my You are 100% right. And I have a feeling, I have a feeling you're not the only one that, that feels that way. For me, it was exactly the same thing when I when I popped in Skyrim. I played uh, Oblivion, yeah. but uh, I played it on the 360. And I mean, my Xbox literally locked up every 15 minutes on the dot. <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't a pleasant experience. When I played Skyrim for the first time, it was like the promises of ocarina of time had finally come true yeah absolutely so back to the question of piracy and preservation um uh, let's not sugarcoat it yes it is piracy it absolutely is piracy in black and white is there an ethical question to answer normally that's a bit more clear-cut but this is zelda that we're talking about it's a 35 year old game franchise that has had a big impact on video games and culture as a whole as uh, just the, the musical example was just one small example uh, as part of that um so i don't think i don't think that necessarily makes piracy ethical but i do think nintendo should have a, a duty of care almost to make sure that it does play its part in preserving video game heritage and that might not mean making a rom available to everyone um but at least make sure that it is safely preserved and it's accessible in some form some form or another if that means going to a museum to play it and try it out then then fine so long as it's accessible in some way um yeah i haven't got a, a, a clear answer for you uh, <laughs> is it piracy <laughs> piracy is it preservation it's somewhere in between um i can't imagine we're going to be rushing out to play this hotel version of zelda <laughs> you know uh, what's the situation with saving the game and coming back to it you know the next day um it's weird. I, I think uh, I think I read and I saw that you actually start the game as adult Link rather right, than right. And they, and they have they have hard coded in um, sort of a uh, a patch together saving system, so you right. are able to save the game. But um, but I I haven't really heard anything other than that so far. Yeah, but I think uh, thinking about the bigger picture, I think there does need to be a way that if I wanted to go and study this game and see this game and find out what it's all about, um, 
in in the way perhaps a researcher does go into the british museum to see some rare artifact or to go through their archives then that should be possible either in person or digitally with video games and i think the nintendos and the segas of the world i think if they don't start thinking seriously about their heritage beyond the value of a franchise in terms of future sales can we recycle this franchise um I think they need to think beyond that and think about the value of what they've created to culture as a whole. And I think they're mm. going to regret it if they if they don't do that soon. It's going to be too late if they're not careful and things are going to be yeah. lost. So I well think said. They to think well about said. it. Yeah. So if you're interested in checking out the work that Forest Evolution are doing, just follow them on Twitter. And we'll put a link to the in the show notes to more information about the Gateway 64 system. John, would you believe it? This is episode 49 of This Week in Retro. <laughs> Nearly the big 50, the big 5-0. And I, I, we wouldn't have got here without the listeners, the twirlers. It, it's not really a nickname that I think is going to stick. <laughs> Twirler. I've got, I've got those in my band. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's also with huge thanks to and uh, for the belief in us that, that came from people like RetroRewind.ca. They've supported us from very early on as we've pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps and, and we really, really are appreciative of their support. Now, if you don't know RetroRewind.ca, uh, it's a website that you should check out for anything that's Commodore related. Recap kits, accessories, add-ons, upgrades for your Amigas, Commodore 64s, VIC-20, C16s, anything like that, RetroRewind.ca is the place we recommend you go. We've had some really good feedback from listeners who have actually used the service, uh, and that's why we're always so happy to recommend them uh, and to uh, have them associated with the show because uh we certainly wouldn't peddle people that we don't believe in and retro rewind are a, a company and and a people in frank who's behind the company who we really do believe uh, are doing great things and doing things for the right reason to preserve retro so huge thanks to them um, make sure they make them you make them your first port of call to preserve your machines preferably before the magic smoke is released uh, stay on top of your maintenance of your precious commodore machines and we say a huge thanks to RetroRewind.ca. Please do go and check them out. How strange, John, that hot on the heels of the Zelda story comes the other Nintendo franchise with its <laughs> own discovery. We're talking today about the Museum of Home Computing over in Holland. Now, over there, they boast the world's largest collection of CDI titles. This should perhaps come as no surprise. Um, I mean, the fact that Philips... Uh, was founded over there. The company was founded mm -hmm. in Eindhoven and it grew to become the international success that it is. And as a result, you find a lot more CDI and also I, I find a lot of MSX stuff in the Netherlands uh, because Philips were producing MSX machines as well. So all sorts of interesting stuff in their country and, and a, a really interesting and slightly different thread of computer history to what we get in the UK and, and again in the US. Now, they are in possession of a large archive of CDI titles, but they weren't really sure what they had. You know how it is. You have donations, you collect things, and um, there's always a big power that you'll get to one day to go through an inventory and an archive. And that's what they've caught up with, with their CDI collection. The museum set volunteers the task of creating the inventory of CDI titles, and in them, they found some undiscovered Mario history. Hmm. Now, before we get to that, John, we know that Mario... And Zelda also have appeared on the CDI. They don't exactly have a great reputation, the CDI versions of these games. Games like Hotel Mario and Zelda The Wand of Gamelon. 
Have you ever tried them or, or for that matter, any other CDI titles, John? I've tried my best to avoid them. <laughs> okay. Not a single title, CDI title. Never. No, no, Never. no. Their, repu their reputation precedes them. Yeah. Well, I don't think I've played the Zelda or Mario titles. Um, uh, the game that was always, always being demonstrated on the CDI when it was in the shops, um, when I went to a store, was, was a golf game called Palm Springs, I think it was called. Mm. And on the face of it, it did look really impressive. It had these photorealistic courses. It had a digitized golfer. Uh, and when he swung the club, there were so many frames of animation, it just blew anything else in the shop away. It was a really nice looking thing. Um, all the cartridge systems that were around it, the Mega Drive, the Super Nintendo, uh, even we had things like the 32X coming along then the Amiga CD32, um, they just paled in comparison. When the CDI was playing to its strengths, which was this video stuff, and not once you scratched below the surface, the actual gameplay. Um, you know, if you looked past the video, there was an infinite amount more gameplay in games like PGA Tour Golf on your Mega Drive than there was in this sort of video golf on the CDI. Mm -hmm. So the CDI was all about playing videos um, and playing videos with button presses, and then they would call those games. <laughs> that's pretty much. I think what that's what Dragon Lay is, Dragon Slayer is too, right? Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. Um, and when it when it tried to do things more video game like, um, including Mario games, it generally fell flat on its face. Uh, the only exception I can think of is Tetris, which doesn't really push the machine that hard. There is a really good version of Tetris on the CDI. But as, you, as soon as you stand it up with a game that can go head-to-head, like-for-like -like against another machine, um, a good example is Micro Machines. Mm -hmm. It's just a complete dog's dinner compared to other mm -hmm. platforms. The, the scrolling, mm -hmm. the speed of Micro Machines on the CDI compared to the earlier Mega Drive or the Super Nintendo or even the Amiga 500 is just awful. Um, mm. It's impressive in a way that they even got it to run on the CDI. <laughs> so... Anyway, going back to the museum, what has been discovered? Well, on an unlabeled CD at the museum, the volunteers found uh, a game by the name of Super Mario's Wacky Worlds. I think, uh, I think Amiga Aaron would like that name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, this game was created by Nova Logic. Now, that's a game studio that you might be familiar with. Um, I associate them with the voxel-based simulations that they used to do. So Comanche, Delta Force, Armored Fist games like that um, a really capable studio and this mario game was supposed to be a sequel to super mario world on the super nintendo so quite a high bar to meet now it's very exciting that they found this on a cd and it does still work they popped it in and it loaded right up and no doubt they very quickly archived it but it isn't the first time this particular game has been seen there are three other copies that are known to exist in the wild or at least three so this is this probably the fourth and if you do a quick YouTube search, you can see footage of it in its incomplete form because the game was only about 30% complete. Um, and you can see some glimpses of the game on YouTube, what it looked like. It does look uh, like a pretty game. It looks like it could have been could have been just as capable as Super Mario World on the Super Nintendo. It, it moves a lot better than Micro Machines. Um, yeah, but that, that in itself is, isn't a good thing when you think about the CDI was supposed to be a next-generation console to the Super Nintendo and, and the other games. So to, to meet the same level and to not actually be any better... It just I believe really, they call that the Amiga CD32, Neil. Yeah, it just really emphasizes that it's the same quality. It just has a CD drive 
slapped on top yeah. of it. So, and yeah. that ultimately was the problem with the CDI. It wasn't driving anything new forward. So um, it is an impressive discovery, despite the, the failings of the CDI. It's an important piece of computing history. It did drive that multimedia movement forward and taught us as much through its mistakes as it did through its successes, I think. So it's an important piece of history. And it's an impressive discovery by the museum and the team at the Home Computer Museum over in the Netherlands. And just another example of the, the wealth of rare and exciting things that they have there to discover. So make sure... The uh, Home Computer Museum is on your bucket list of places to visit. It's certainly on mine. Neil, when you think of NASA, what comes to mind? The first thing that comes into my head with NASA is buzz cuts, uh, rows of computers, nerdy people in glasses, um, spinning dials. They're all sitting there tapping keyboards all in a row. And, and Capcom is barking orders at the front. I'm basically just thinking of the movie Apollo 13, but that is the first <laughs> thing that I think of with NASA. Yeah, how about you? You know, Neil, you and I are cut from the same cloth, my friend, because <laughs> that's exactly what I think of too. I think about, you know, rows and rows of board operators in front of those, you know, green screen CRTs. They're all chain smoking. They're all drinking coffee. They're doing calculations by hand. Uh, it's basically, like you said, it's Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's, it's, it may be weird, but that image comes to mind faster than astronauts, rockets, landing on the moon, you know, all that unimportant stuff. But <laughs> any, as much as that control room image has been burned into my mind uh it's set to be replaced thanks to a story shared with us by subreddit user cosmic vibes he says uh there's a new article on hackaday this week that details the computer system used by nasa for vehicle telemetry inside hangar ae so get ready for this neil in 1986 nasa was on the hunt for a budget-conscious solution to uh, process information about launch vehicle telemetry that could be disseminated to various departments throughout the company. Uh, first, they thought about Apple, who just launched the Macintosh, but uh, its closed architecture meant that the engineers couldn't really get what they wanted out of it. So instead, they went with, can you guess, Neil? There's only one sensible choice, isn't there, John? Has to be, has to be the Commodore Amiga. How, how did you know, Neil? <laughs> was it the maniacal grin on my face as I recounted the story? That's right, Neil. It was the Amiga. And as the, the systems started to age, as these uh, Amigas started to age, the top brass at NASA wanted those Amigas replaced with uh, Windows units, you know, Windows NT or Windows 95 computers. And when the engineers said they weren't powerful enough, they suggested uh, DEC Alphas. Uh, Neil, I had no idea that DEC was still manufacturing computers in the 90s. We, we covered a story about their PDP, you know, uh, recreation a couple months ago. Um, but um, in fact, just as an aside, uh, I was doing research for this story and I discovered the deck was actually acquired in June 1998 by Compaq. And at the time, that was the largest merger in the history of the computer industry. I mean, that's pretty crazy considering neither DEC or Compaq are exactly at the forefront of technology anymore. No, I mean, they certainly held a huge amount of weight, those two names, in, mm -hmm. still in the late 90s, Compaq especially. Mm -hmm. But my first ever experience of working um, in IT was in an office with DEC Alpha machines, and those machines were running Windows NT with DEC servers in the background. Um, and it always felt really cool when you saw the Alpha name. It would appear in white text on a blue background mm. as NT started to boot up. 
But you could already see at that point that was the way DEC was going. They were producing beige box PCs. Yes, they still had their own special architecture in there and their own CPUs and, and Microsoft. People forget Windows was or Windows NT, not not the 9X, but Windows NT was made to support different architectures and be adaptable from the start. And it was a really solid system, Windows NT on, on a DEC machine, alpha machine. Um, and it, yeah, it felt really cool. Um, and this was hard. The nice thing about this was this was hardware that I couldn't have dreamed of owning a DEC Alpha machine at home, but I could instantly use it because it was running Windows NT on there, which I was familiar with. So um, I really loved that. And uh, I was sad to see DEC go uh, be swallowed up by Compaq when it was. Mm, yeah, that's that's super interesting. I had no idea any of that stuff existed. Um, so anyway, getting back to our NASA story, uh, Windows PCs weren't powerful enough. Decks were too expensive. So why not just buy more Amigas? Well, according to Gary Jones, who was then the principal systems engineer for NASA, the heads of NASA thought the Amigas, quote, just didn't cost enough. That's that's typical government bureaucracy for you, Neil. <laughs> I think you just found your new catchphrase, John. Why not just buy more Amigas? It's the answer That's to everything. Right. It's the answer. the answer to everything. <laughs> I do like to imagine that there's a warehouse somewhere at NASA that's just full of boxes of Amiga 500 Batman packs, you know, <laughs> or, or even better, more suitable would be the Flight of Fantasy bundle that the Amiga mm. 500 did. So just boxes and boxes of them filling a NASA warehouse somewhere. Must be the case. <laughs> Yes, yeah. Uh, it appears that Amigas were used at NASA all the way up until 2006. Unbelievable. And one even came up for sale a few years back that sold for over five grand. Wow. So it's amazing to me that these machines were in service for that long. Of course, there's also the famous story reported just a few years ago that Amigas are still controlling the heating and, and cooling systems of uh, 19 schools in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, Neil, you've spent your fair share amount of time in hardware support did you ever see like a bank of bbc micros controlling a supermarket inventory or like a server rack of zx spectrums doing bank ledgers um no i think i think the best i could probably do is a 486 pc that was running part of a cctv system and that was around 2016 so it was seriously outdated by that point um uh, i went to see it because the hard drive had unsurprisingly failed uh, and when i opened it up it had like an inch of dust and grime inside this oh, machine yeah. it, it was horrible but um unfortunately it wasn't a company where i could take the machine the 486 home and, and have it for myself <laughs> so uh, that was you, a bit you couldn't sad. just be like I, i'm gonna take this out to the dumpster and then yeah. it goes in the back of your car <laughs> and um i also remember supporting um several bakeries and um Oh, I can't remember the name of the system, but basically they were still dialing in, you know, it was a modern PC, but they would pop up a terminal screen to log into what was essentially an emulated version of an old IBM back end system and do all of their stock control in that. Um, really? Oh, I, I'm, I'm afraid I can't remember the name of that system, but someone will point it out in the comments, I'm sure. And it was it was like you're on a modern PC, but then within the window, you're on an old school terminal with the green. Oh, yeah. I, that, that, background. that exact thing happens here at, at the school district that I teach at. We have a, a, a an environment called green screen uh, that basically turns a modern PC into a, a terminal, essentially. And the reason why we keep it around is because it's so much faster to use the keyboard based interface for the secretaries to go and do scheduling and things like that plus these secretaries this is the same old story where you have people that have been in the system for 40 years they refuse to learn anything they refuse to change and so green screen you know ambles on into the future 
<laughs> so let's get back to the uh, NASA control room, John. Um, have you seen the Tesla? Have you been watching the Blue Shepherd launches? That have been going oh, yeah, I love all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but if you see the control rooms for these places now, they just look like gaming PCs set up on IKEA furniture, um, or worse <laughs> still, worse still, just laptops kind of thrown around on desks. And mm-hmm. I know it's all perfectly suitable, and, and amazing things have been achieved and everything. But um, it, it all has that feeling when you watch these launches of of like visiting a doctor and the doctor's not wearing the white coat or doesn't have the stethoscope around right, his neck. Right. You know, there are certain things that you expect. And um, there's an order of things when it comes to the chaos of launching fleshy humans up into space on a rocket. And, and part of that order for me is an environment in which, you, you know, you've got this environment where the destiny of these astronauts is decided through the push of a button on a computer. And I want that place to look like science fiction. I want it to look like it's 30 years ahead of where we are now and mm-hmm. not like a LAN party, which is what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> is it just me? <laughs> yeah, it's not just you. I, I, if I had all of Elon's money, I would build myself a command center you know, that looks just like you know the one in Houston. And even if it was completely non-functional, I would have it all lit up and I would have people sitting there and I would take you know publicity photos and, and shoot all the videos and things while the real people were doing stuff on the ikea furniture in the next room it just it's good pr it would have the added bonus of throwing your competition off the sense they'd be like right what machines are those what are they using they must have something really special and it's just are those decks oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) well if you know any stories listeners fine listeners of retro computers still plugging away at real life activities leave us a note in the comments Our final story this week was submitted by user Pajaco6502, and he linked us to NME.com. So even the New Music Express love retro gaming these days, John. And Mm. uh, it's all about a clash of old and new. The game in question is The Simpsons Hit and Run, which was released in 2003. came out on the GameCube, PS2, Xbox, and on the PC, which is what I played it on. And this game was essentially Grand Theft Auto in a Simpsons world. Uh, It gave us the combination of an open world game and familiar characters, which instantly made it really popular. Um, And and some actually argue that this is the greatest Simpsons game, Simpsons tying game ever made. Now, I would argue that there are others up there with it. Um, One for me that's probably top of the list was Krusty's Super Fun House on the Super Nintendo. I thought that was a really great game, possibly the best to date. But uh, in terms of this game, or any other Simpsons games for that matter, but did you play Hit and Run or any other Simpsons games, John? Uh, I played the Immortal Classic Bart versus the Space Mutants on, on the Nintendo. And when I say Immortal Classic, I mean Immortal Dud. That game was no good. Um, anyway, I'm surprised that we haven't covered it on Amigos yet because I know it did get an Amiga port. But uh, I never played Hit and Run. Uh, it came out in 2003 which for me was at a time in my life where I just wasn't interested in new video games. I was at the height of my career as a retro collector and player. But I do love the idea of Simpsons Hit and Run. I mean, a GTA game where you're in Springfield and you're running around with all the the wacky characters in the Simpsons universe. I mean, how can you lose with that? Yeah, yeah, it was a great idea. And there were at least 27 Simpsons games um, dating back all the way back to the much-loved four-player arcade cabinet, which was in 1991. Always a classic and uh, one to gather Mm -hmm. around in the same way that you would Gauntlet or NBA Jam with your friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always remember on that arcade, it had the digitized Simpsons music playing. 
it had the clouds that would appear and separate with the Simpsons logo behind it. And it was quite something to see that, uh, to see something that looks like it comes straight off of your television at home, but in an arcade. And essentially it was playable. It wasn't falling into that same category of being a cartoon playing from a laser disc in the same way as the game that you mentioned earlier, Dragon's Lair. This was actually right. a playable game. Um, other notable mentions include Bart versus the Space Mutants, which was bundled uh, in the Amiga Cartoon Classics pack. I wasn't a fan of it, I have to be honest. No, um, no. But it did, again, it did have a fun intro sequence, cartoony intro sequence. Yeah, the 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 whole the whole part of the game, except for the actual game, and even the concept of the game is 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 pretty good. Uh, but uh, the the gameplay, the controls, uh, take a pass if you haven't tried it out. Don't play it. Yeah, and they've been brave with what they've done with the Simpsons name. You know, they haven't held back. You've had Simpsons hit and run. You've had Simpsons wrestling, Simpsons bowling. You know, they'll, they'll try mm. anything and everything. Yeah. Um, and also a, a game called Road Rage, which came out in exactly the same year as Hit and Run, but that was more of a crazy taxi-style game and um, didn't rate well. You'd probably be disappointed if you went out to get Hit and Run and you accidentally came back with Road Rage, which is mm -hmm. um, an accident that you could probably easily make. Or if you sent your mum or dad to go out and get the game, they could have easily made and you would have been pretty disappointed with that. Sure. However, the reason all of this Simpsons talk is in NME.com this week is because a developer by the name of Rubes has conducted a little experiment. He's tried to create a modern remake of Hit and Run in just one week using Unreal Engine 5 to make it. Um, so he's really rapidly developed this thing. And there's a great video on YouTube in which he explains how all of this has been achieved. And if you consider the size of the team that was needed to recreate the Simpsons world in full 3D in 2003, um, even on the technology back then, PlayStation 2s and Xboxes, it would have been an impossible task for one person to do, especially in a week. So in this video, he explains how he managed it. He found some old tools which helped him to rip the assets from the original game, including the 3D world itself, the textures to go on it, uh, and then the textures, actually, that's a big point in the video. There's something that he had to improve on because he wanted to scale this thing up to 4K resolutions. So he was really smart about the way he approached this. And he used a bit of software you may have heard of called Gigapixel AI to automatically scale up all of those really small 2003 textures to, to a 4K level. Um, so that really helped him. And yes, before anyone asks, he has turned RTX on in this thing. So you can use your bang up to date graphics card to see it. All, all that Simpsons hair will be flowing in the breeze. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that the big thing with the RTX is like Laura Croft's hair and all that stuff. <laughs> and the way the light bounces off of Homer mm -hmm. Simpson's forehead and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, a problem I have to deal with daily myself. Oh yes. But uh, he also goes into how the characters were animated for this remake. And before long, he had Homer Simpson running around Springfield with those ray-traced graphics. And it is amazing. It really is amazing to see how he's achieved all of this using modern tools. And because the game is based on a cartoon, the game models and the scenery and everything, uh, they really do lend themselves well to being scaled up. There's not an obvious lack of detail in these things. It's just a style that continues to work well when it's scaled up. So it looks mm. really, really great. Now, I won't spoil the whole video for you. But he does go on to add music and sound. He goes on to add physics to the game, uh, items to collect in the game, and crucially, vehicles to drive all in one week. And he completes his objective, which was to 
make the first mission of the game completely playable. So that's where we're up to with it. Um, yeah, he's done a really, really good job. And um, I noticed also this week we saw Quake get a 25th anniversary remake, um, a complete Quake remake and an official remake. This just this wasn't one guy trying to rapidly develop it. Uh, and it's come along really nicely. And, and perhaps that's the incentive you need, John, to finally play Quake, because I know you haven't played <laughs> I've been yes. tempted, you know. I saw I saw LGR playing it on that old school CRT, and uh, maybe maybe this is the time. It's it's the it's the twenty twenties. It's it's the time for Quake. It's the time. It's the time, John. <laughs> but um, if if you could pick any retro game to get the, the full RTX treatment, the Unreal or the Unity engine treatment, and and get a makeover for the present day, what would you pick? Well, I guess you'd have to start. You don't have to, but my mind immediately went to 3D-based games. And, of course, uh, and there's there's sort of a line in the stand for me personally when it comes to retro. And I, I tend to only think about retro games taking place in a 2D space. So I, I sort of chose my answer on sort of the, the dawn of the 3D era. And I thought about a game like Wolfenstein 3D. Um, you know, the uh, the trick would be to keep the nostalgic charm of the original, but update it in, with, with this new engine. And I was thinking about, um, there's a game called 3D.GameHeroes. Are you familiar with this game, Neil? No, I'm not, no. So this is, it's sort of a Zelda knockoff, uh, where, but it's it's a 2D Zelda-like game, but they've replaced all of the sprites with, uh, with pixels, 3D pixels so when you hit something the pixels bounce off and things like that and so i would love to see something like that with the original wolfenstein where they kept it looking sort of primitive but 3dized it and made all the textures look super cool with the with this new engine so there's my answer for you so almost like um almost like a a, a remake that keeps its original charm has almost like a, a minecraft rtx style yeah, to it yeah with, absolutely yeah, foxily things flying out of everything so yeah I, I can get i can get behind that that sounds fun um there are there have been various wolfenstein remakes the, the latest one from 2019 was called wolfenstein young blood and um <laughs> it looks kind of like teen fiction meets nazi slay and it, it is certainly something to see from the trailers i've never played I, it i myself. don't know how i missed that one neil <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah it's a, it, yeah i don't know it's not the direction i imagined wolfenstein to go in but obviously <laughs> people pay money to use the name that is franchised out and and these things happen these but, things um, happen <laughs> yeah um i think i'd like to see a modern rtx remake of a game that was mentioned earlier in, in the show and that's those nova logic games um particularly comanche which was a fantastic helicopter simulation they leaned on the side of action over simulation but it was very much a simulation uh because it still managed to reward you for flying well as you as it would in a simulation but with extra explosions and um shorter distances between the waypoints and things like that so you were into the action a lot quicker than you would be a traditional simulation i love the series the problem with um, a modern remake is that the wonderful landscapes from the game were made of voxels. So that's a totally different way of creating worlds and rendering them than the polygon-based systems that modern graphics cards can accelerate. This was all accelerated by the CPU back then. And, you know, it did a wonderful job of it. It was inc incredible to see, roll to go to rolling landscapes with voxels, um, having been used to sort of a flat plane in a flight simulator, 
and then maybe a single pyramid in the middle of the landscape. Suddenly you had these rolling landscapes and it, they did a really great job of it. So if they could somehow remake that, I think we could get enough, we could pack enough polygons into a game. You know, I, I think, I think computers are good enough these days where you could have simulated voxels that are actually pixels that act exactly like voxels used to and look just like them. So I, I think that's totally doable in the right hands. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I'd love to see that. Uh, the, the, the big um, problem with voxels, and I think the reason it really didn't take off, was because of the, the problems in animating them. It was great for mm -hmm. scenery, but if mm -hmm. you wanted to turn that into a detailed character and then animate the character, it was it was just impossible. So um, they kind of died a death. But in terms of games I'd like to see remade, that's the one. That's the one for me. Anyway, the um, Simpsons Hit and Run remake video is well worth 10 minutes of your time. Uh, give it a watch. It's presented with really good humor as well. It's a nice, easy to watch video and it, it gives you a real sense of the power of modern development tools and just why in the right hands indie developers can achieve such brilliant things that would have traditionally taken an entire studio of people to do. All the links for this and any other story that you've enjoyed today, you can find in the show notes. So, Neil, last week's community question of the week was, what do you think of the A500 Mini? And we got tons and yeah. tons of responses. Shockingly, people are interested in talking about the A500 Mini and planting their flag on one side or other of the debate. So It was, uh, um, it, it was a popular show, John. We got a lot of views last week. Um, and uh, it could be because the thumbnail had the A500 Mini and the title did. It's certainly a topic of I, conversation. I just like I just like to take this opportunity to announce that we're actually changing the name of the show to this week in the A five hundred mini. <laughs> you just That's doubled the key on to success. <laughs> yeah. So we we did get some good uh, responses from Reddit. We're going to read the top three must upvoted responses. The first one comes from Richie Nichols. He says, "I would love to have a full size version of this, but I'll buy the mini because I'm sure that good sales will help the likelihood of the full size version being produced." And yeah. uh, we did we did talk about that a little bit, I think. We did touch on that and the fact that when they did the C64 Mini, they didn't mention anything about a Maxi. Uh, and then the Maxi sales, I think they accounted for about 20% of the, the overall sales of mm -hmm. the C64 recreation. But they've done it the other way around this week. So they've, they've uh, uh, this time they've said that there will be a Maxi or they're hoping to do a Maxi of the A500. So... Yeah, how do you approach it? Do you do like Richie's doing and buy the Mini to support it and hope that that goes towards making the Maxi? Or do you sit back and wait for the Maxi and hope enough other people buy it so that the Maxi exists? It's, it's right. a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's classic Commodore management. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Give the, give the consumer so many choices they don't know what to do, end up buying nothing, and you go out of business. Nailed it. <laughs> Um, Quinn Mang says, given the C64 Mini or Maxi, I expect the A500 Mini will be a good product, but it's too pricey for me. I've supported Cloanto in the past by purchasing Amiga and C64 Forever products, so I already have license to play several games and use the OS and Kickstart. So for me, all I would be paying for is the shell, the retro tank mouse, and the CD32 lookalike pad, but I'm okay without those. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that's yeah. Your 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 ref, point of reference is the amount of time and money that you've already spent on creating the the experience that you want. Now, if you're going from a standing start and you haven't done any of that, I think the price is perfectly reasonable for what you're getting for the yeah. for the ease of use, for the quality of the product. 
Um, I, I don't I don't personally think it's overpriced, but in that context where you've put so much time and money into it, yeah, it's it's not for you, and that's fine. Exactly, exactly. And finally, Reading Glasses Man says, uh, if I can run Workbench and therewith productivity apps connected to the interwebs on the mini through the use of a USB keyboard, then I could well be all in on this. Uh, he says, I'll be one of those suckers to be annoyed when a full-size one with a functional keyboard comes out. But it, it, it but if it is only games and locked to only games, which is unlikely, then I'll likely avoid this like COVID. Uh, but as Gentleman Neil said in the podcast, Gentleman Neil, you know, that's a great name for you. <laughs> that mouse will be something a great many retro fans will hanker after, and it might be a good decision to sell that on its own, regardless of the success of the Mini itself. I think we discussed that it does support WHD load. Um, it does, I, I'm pretty sure it supports your own hard drive image files, or you can add ADFs. I, either way, yes, you're going to be able to use Workbench on it. Um, I think it would be madness for them to try and lock it down, wouldn't it? Knowing what Amiga users are like and what they want to do, yeah. it would be crazy to try and lock it down. I agree. I agree. I think you'll be able to run whatever you want on this thing. Um, and uh, he also poses a, a question within a question. He says, I wonder what a collective noun for retro fans should be. A history of retro fans or maybe a <laughs> floppy of retro fans? So uh, that's the, <laughs> that's another thing to ponder this week, Neil. What would you what would you say? I think oh, I almost want that to be our question of the week. Uh, yeah. What, oh, what is, that? What oh. is a collective of retro fans called? Um, I like that. I yeah. like that. Why don't we Why don't we make that our question of the week this week? Okay. So uh, our question of the week this week is: What is the best collective noun for a group of retro fans? Uh, please post your responses in the subreddit, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. Today's episode of This Week in Retro comes thanks to our partners at Anchor FM. Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be. That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.